Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. Good evening. In addition to the Jesus prayer that's on the table in the middle, I also put out this little booklet that's called Daily Prayers to Save America. This was put together by the exorcist, Father Ripperger, and it's, it's a beautiful little prayer that we can make every day. I brought a hundred of them, so please feel free to take one, and if you know people who would like it, please feel free to take extras. So let us begin with our Jesus prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son, And of the Holy Spirit, amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul in all its powers that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Now, the theme that inspired the composition of tonight's presentation is the kiss of the bridegroom, which is drawn from the Song of Songs. Now, last week, we began our reflection with the procession that begins at every Mass. And the procession, among other things, reminds us that we are now accompanying Jesus on his torturous journey to Calvary. But there's more. The procession is also a reminder that every mass is a wedding. So Jesus' wedding ceremony began in the upper room on Holy Thursday, then continued on Good Friday when our sins nailed him to his wedding bed and will be triumphantly celebrated in heaven as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we can rejoice with all the heavenly hosts who joyfully proclaim hallelujah, which comes from the Hebrew words hallel, Yahweh, praise God. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride 
all the redeemed, has made herself ready. This powerful nuptial theme is also expressed in the second stanza of a popular communion hymn, O Lord, I am not worthy. It begins, and humbly I'll receive thee, the bridegroom of my soul. This idea of Jesus as a heavenly bridegroom is deeply rooted in the covenant. The covenant is the family bond that God established with his people. And it forms a great master theme that runs through the whole Bible. And because the covenant establishes a nuptial type relationship with God, Serious sin is often described as adultery because sin is always an act of infidelity. And so the prophet Jeremiah lamented the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom of Israel, which he charged played the harlot and indulged in her adulteries. The idea is also carried into the New Testament. So, for example, when scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, he referred to them as an evil and adulterous generation. The entire book of Hosea draws on this covenantal theme. Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, is depicted as divided kingdom, the people of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. But how did God respond to their infidelity? Was it with vengeance? No. Instead, he promised, listen to the language, I will allure her. And by forming the new covenant, God declared, you will call me my husband. And I will espouse you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will espouse you in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The prophet Isaiah also drew on the covenant theme as he foresaw the coming of the Messiah, who he called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince, of peace. He also identified the Messiah as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father and declared that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And therefore, God gave his people the following assurance. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed Be not confounded, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth because of your sinfulness and the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth 
he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she was cast off, says the Lord. Finally, the prophet Isaiah declared, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. The covenant is also described in marriage terms in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The Song of Songs is my favorite book of the Old Testament. It is an ancient collection of romantic poetry attributed to Solomon, which dramatizes the ardent love between a man and his beloved. The ancient rabbis considered all the books of the Old Testament to be holy, but the Song of Songs, it considered that this was the holy of holies. You may not realize that in the history of the Catholic Church, the Song of Songs has generated more commentaries than any other book of the Bible. For 2,000 years, numerous Christians, saints, and mystics have interpreted this song as an allegory, as a poetic expression of the passionate love between Jesus and his bride, the church, which includes each one of us. No wonder that the awesome 12th century Saint Bernard of Clairvaux delivered 87 homilies just on the Song of Songs. Now, when reading the song, it is not surprising that some of the poem's love depictions are somewhat outdated. I wouldn't, for example, recommend that you say to your wife, sweetheart, your hair is like a flock of goats flowing down the hills of Gilead. So obviously, after 3,000 years, some of the expressions uh, leave something to be desired. However, when the bride explains in wonder and awe, my beloved is mine and I am his. Wow. The song perfectly captures the loving relationship with Jesus, the divine lover, the divine husband, that each one of us is called to have. I already mentioned that this touching marital theme, the covenant, is carried over into the New Testament. So let's consider some significant examples. When John the Baptist was asked if he was the Messiah, he responded, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, but notice how he identified Jesus. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, John himself, who stands beside him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now full. And he adds these wonderful words, he must increase, I 
must decrease. The miracle at the wedding feast at Cana was Jesus' first sign that guided his disciples to believe in him. Well, what was the miracle a sign of? A sign points to another reality. So, for example, smoke is a sign that the reality is fire. The sign of the multiplication of water into wine pointed to the coming heavenly banquet where Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, will establish with his bride. Wow. Notice also the prophetic language Jesus used when he was asked this question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Good question. Listen how Jesus responded to them. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, I have six daughters. The idea of fasting at a wedding has a lot of appeal to me, but unfortunately, five of them are already married. So Jesus continues, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This is a reference to his crucifixion. And they will fast in that day. During the Last Supper, Jesus identified the offering of his body and blood as the new covenant promised by the prophet Jeremiah. In establishing his everlasting covenant, Jesus did not simply make a covenant, he became the covenant as he formed us into his mystical body, the church. Jesus' profound instruction on marriage in the fifth chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, I should say St. Paul's instruction, connects the marital wedded union between Christ and the church in the relationship of husbands and wives. It's the model of Christian marriage. And so he instructs husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself over for her. This helps us understand why it was only in the loving context of the first mass on Holy Thursday that Jesus gave us his new commandment. That you love one another even as I have loved you. And by this, all men will, you know, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This impossible commandment now becomes possible because Jesus redeemed us and now abides in us. The high point of the book of Revelation, alluded to earlier, depicts all the redeemed in heaven as a bride of Christ participating in an eternal bliss of an everlasting wedding banquet. Listen how it's expressed. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready 
It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and white. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wow. When God created marriage between a man and a woman at the dawn of civilization, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now they were called both to spiritual and biological fruitfulness. In joining spouses in their lifetime relationship, God called them to form an indissoluble unity that both expressed and consummated that is both expressed and consummated in their one flesh union. And therefore, Jesus taught, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So the spouse's new oneness is one of the keys to understanding why sacramental marriage cannot be dissolved by divorce. Consider the following comparison. If you take a half gallon of red paint and a half gallon of white paint and mix them together in a gallon can, you now have a new oneness a gallon of pink pan. Now, divorce them, separate the two. Similarly, the spouse of human being Christ and his members seeks an intimate spiritual union that expressed physically in the worthy reception of holy communion. It's a marvel. Jesus body, blood, soul, and divinity comes into our body under the humble appearance of a wafer of bread. It's like a miniature miracle of the incarnation when Jesus conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin by the Holy Spirit. Let's consider another comparison that helps us understand this marvel that takes place. When we eat ordinary food, its nutritional value sustains our human existence. Maybe some of us too much sustaining, but only for a time. And then our bodily waste management system discards those things that our body does not need. In this way, the food we eat becomes us. However, when we receive Jesus and Holy Communion, the true bread from heaven, we receive him and Holy Communion. He changes us into himself. He abides in us and then we abide in him. The Eucharist then becomes the basis of our eternal life. And so Jesus said, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. In the marvel of Holy Communion, then the spiritual waste management system comes into play. 
as it expunges from us the elements that prevent our complete transformation into Jesus. This is how the beautiful prayer of St. John Gabriel Parable is achieved in Holy Communion. Oh, my divine Savior, transfer me into yourself. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers. That my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you, please destroy in me all that is not you. And grant that I may live but in you and for you. And that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live, no, now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That beautiful saying of St. Paul quoted in that prayer, I live, now, not I, but Christ lives in me, is preceded by spiritual death. For St. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? The apostle tells us in his letter to the Colossians, we were buried with him in baptism. Subsequently, when we surrender ourselves as victims with Jesus in the sacrifice of the mass and worthy receive Jesus in Holy Communion, our transformation should become more apparent as the supernatural waste management system begins to expunge from us those elements that either diminish or block our transformation into Christ. St. Paul lists some of these negative qualities that need expunging. He identifies them in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5 as works of the flesh, and then he enumerates some of them. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery. It's interesting that the Greek word translated as sorcery is pharmakeia. We get the word pharmacology from that. It means literally the taking of drugs. Think of that in relation to our society. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. Wow. That's an important issue here. These works of the flesh reach the stage of gravity, the gravity of mortal sin. The reception of Holy Communion is forbidden. It would only add to our sinfulness. And thus St. Paul affirmed, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. This is the grave sin of sacrilege. Think of Judas. Jesus loved Judas so much that he handed himself over to Judas. And that's what allowed Judas to betray him. But it also gave Judas the possibility to become a great saint. 
Jesus loves us so much that he puts himself in our hands. And some of us desecrate his sacred Eucharistic body with the terrible sin of sacrilege. The tender dialogue between the lovers in the Song of Songs opens with the bride's passionate plea, oh, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. That exclamation captures the deepest longing of every human heart. And although its fulfillment is available to everyone, sadly, many do not achieve it. St. Bernard speaks of the three kisses that highlight stages in our development in the spiritual life. The first he calls the kisses of his feet. This marks the baby stage where the focus is on avoiding mortal sin, repentance, and conversion. And thus, the psalmist urges us in Psalm 95, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The New Testament gives us the example of the humble tax collector who beat his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then there's the, the profound compunction of the sin, single sinful woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet. You see, we symbolically follow their example when we say the confidior at Mass. The second kiss is the kiss of his hands. Peter was able to walk on water like Jesus. But when his focus switched from Jesus to Peter and the threatening wind, well, the rock began to sink like a rock. And so what happened? Peter cried out and immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed his hand and caught him. So Isaiah urges us, strengthen the weak hands and make them, make our feeble knees strong. Conversion is our starting point. But in order to develop into spiritual adolescence, we need to tightly grasp Jesus' hands, which represents his strength. He reminds us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as we change, and as we begin to make progress, we must avoid self-reliance as we combat our misguided love for this world and our excessive love for ourselves. St. Paul reminds us in his first letter to the Corinthians, what have you that you did not receive? Well, if you received it, why do you boast as if it was not a gift? St. Paul instructs us that we make ourselves a slave to whatever, whatever it is that we submit to, either sin 
which leads to spiritual death, or the love of God that leads to eternal life. The grace of repentance frees us from the slavery of sin. And therefore, the apostle urges us, do not again yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Another obstacle to growing spiritually into adulthood is lukewarmness. The prophet Jeremiah warned against the danger of lukewarmness. He said, curse is he who does not work, does not do the work of the Lord with, who, excuse me, curse is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness. Furthermore, God admonished the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, vomit you out of my mouth. Oh, serious stuff. We are easily attracted to the so-called wisdom and allurements of this world that St. Paul tells us God judges as folly. In addition, we are pulled by the desires of the flesh, which are hostile to God. And therefore, St. John warns us, if anyone loves the world, love the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is lust of the flesh, disordered appetites, lust of the eyes, disordered desire for things and wealth, and the pride of life. He is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God, abides forever. Jesus instructs us that God is a jealous God, meaning he wants all our love, not a divided heart. Thus Jesus declared, the great and first commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In the poker game of life, it means we are all in. That is, we're willing to risk everything and we will hold nothing back. This complete surrender leads to the intimacy of the oneness of lovers. Ah, then the boldness of the bride who recognized she is first loved by God impels the longing of her heart to burst into cries of love. Oh, that you would kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. And we observe an example of this all in love on Easter Sunday when Mary Magdalene looking for Jesus and she sees the man she thinks is a garden. She says, sir, you have carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Notice 
Who is him? She doesn't even mention his name because she's from Mary Magdalene. Jesus is the only one that matters. Nothing counts but Jesus. So in Holy Communion, we experience the third kiss, the kiss of the mouth. Then we can exclaim with joy, my beloved is mine and I am his. No wonder that Jesus told Blessed Marie de la Incarnacion, love is my name. Our love is expressed in what we do. In relationship to God, love in action is called obedience. But with God, love is who he is. And therefore, the kiss of his lips is the Holy Spirit. And so St. Bernard declared, if as is properly understood, the father is he who kisses and the son is he who is kissed, then it cannot be wrong to see in the kiss of the Holy Spirit, the divine person of infinite love, for he is the imperturbable peace of the father and the son, their unshakable bond, their undivided love, their indivisible unity. So you see, in Holy Communion, the divine kiss that eternally unites the Father and the Son in the mystery of the Blessed Trinity now unites us with the persons of the Blessed Trinity. And in this kiss, we discover the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. Father, that they may all be one as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us. You see, it's the same kiss. It's the same love. It's the same Holy Spirit. So both St. Cyril of Jerusalem and St. Ambrose taught that Jesus' kiss is uniquely experienced in the worthy reception of Holy Communion when the body of Jesus touches our lips. In Holy Communion, the oneness of the love with the heavenly bridegroom in the Holy Spirit is consummated and provisionally fulfilled in this life, awaiting to be fully attained in paradise at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And thus Jesus taught, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he eats me, lives because of me. And so it is uniquely in Holy Communion that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. as St. Paul teaches in his wonderful letter to the Romans. Wow. The worthy reception of Holy Communion infuses in us the transforming fruits 
of God's divine love. In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, the same passage that talks about works of the flesh, lists those qualities that should become apparent in our life by the power of the Eucharistic Jesus. And he lists them. Listen to them. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, how are we doing? Can our spouse and children and friends see the difference? If there's no spiritual growth in these areas, something is radically wrong. So how are we doing? In the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a lovely hymn, Panis Angelicus. I'm sure all of you are familiar with it. Bread of Angels. Every time Kitty or Anne or Mary Beth sing that hymn with their lovely voices, it just melts my heart. Panis Angelicus, thick Panis Hominum. May the bread of angels become the bread of humans. Dat panis celicus figuris terminum. The bread of heaven ends all foreshadowing. Why? Because it's the real Jesus. It's not a symbol. Oh, res mirabilis. Oh, miraculous reality. Manducat dominum. Pauper, pauper, servus et humilis. The body of the Lord nourishes the poor. Yes, the poor, the submissive and the humble. Whoa. So let us say together once more the beautiful Jesus prayer. Oh, my divine Savior, Transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every fact in my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you, destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Next week, our theme is Jesus' farewell remarks. I am with you always. Thank you so much. so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. 
You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.